Hello and welcome back to the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. This week we're talking about The Climb, Season 3, Episode 6, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, directed by Alex Sakharov. This week we are joined by Maureen Ryan, so it's going to be a good one. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. This week we are talking The Climb, and here to help us with that from the Huffington Post and Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan, it's Maureen Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. It's uh, it's going to be fun. Now, before we start each week, we'd like to remind listeners that, first of all, we will not be spoiling anything from the books. I have read them. Ricky has not. Uh, Mo, where do you fit in with that? I've read the first three, but I'm trying actively to forget them so that I don't compare them in my head all the time. So it's good that I have a kind of a failing memory at this point. I'm, you know, I'm not at all <laughs> <laughs> sad when I, things take me completely by surprise. Go team memory loss. Yeah, there, there are yeah. a few things in this episode that uh, were a little uh, surprising to me. So, and that's as a book reader. They, they're starting to make some bigger changes. We'll see how that goes over the course of the season. But let's just start with... Uh, I don't know. How, how should we start this episode? Do we want to start or end with Jon Snow? Well, it seems like they kind of used that the north north of the wall as a like bookends to the series, and I think um, you know what that's in itself kind of an accomplishment. I think what the show's gotten so much better at is finding ways to thematically link things through direction, through visuals. You know, all the way from you had Jillian um, Sam you know, looking so kind of forlorn and yet kind of sweet by the fire, but they're in this giant forest. And then you've also got the scale of the, you know, um, Jon Snow and Ygritte on the top of the wall and, and that the struggle to get there. So it just seems like things, even when they are going from place to place, really tie together more. I don't know if that's that's my take on it, but um, it was exciting. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of always exciting when things kind of, kind of take an epic turn. You know, that's part of why... I wanted them to make Game of Thrones, you know, big battles and big struggles and, you know, giant castles and walls <laughs> and things. So I, I was I was pleased with the episode. I mean, what I've been saying about the season is that it, it feels like each part is more substantial. That's partly because we've spent more time with the characters, but it just in general feels like each section of the story that you go to or each scene that you spend time with people, generally they're, they're long enough that you kind of feel like you're getting a real feel for where people stand and what they're, what's going on with them. Well, it's not a huge difference, but I think, you know, the extra five or to eight minutes or whatever that each episode is getting this season has made mm -hmm. a substantial difference. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think that's a huge, it, it's not, it's like a whole extra episode which I've been kind of, you know, lobbying for, but they found a better way to do it than, you know, I think HBO was wary of just giving them a whole big, you know, chunk of change to do a whole extra episode. Maybe they are getting more money to do these longer episodes. I would, I would think so. But um, I think the way they've gone about it, trying to deepen every portion of the story feels it's a really smart, you know, choice that they've made. 
Ricky, how did this episode work for you? Uh, as a whole, I think the climb wasn't as strong as the previous episode, which is still my favorite of season three. Mm-hmm. But it did give us one hell of an ending, a, a big sweeping emotional moment that I think is amazing. Like, I truly loved it. As cheesy as it, some people might think it is. Um, I think last week's episode was all about forward movement. And I think this episode is all about payoff. It's paid off some of the big moments formed from last week's episode. The climb focused on so many characters being used, sacrificed by, you know, warlocks or kings or larger organizations or religion. And so like many of the episodes in Game of Thrones, it unfolds mostly in the form of a series of conversations. But those conversations are once again fascinating. But I think what the reason why I like this episode so much, probably more than anyone else I know, is because we always return to Jon Snow and his journey, even in like the previous episodes in season three, like we bounce around from one set of characters to the next set of characters to the next set of characters. And we never really return to anyone because there's so many characters in this series. But in this episode, we kept continuously returning to Jon Snow. And I think that's why I liked it so much. Like it, it just seemed like it had more focus. I think it's fitting that the episode begins with this very quiet scene set by the fire and it ends on this emotional high with mm-hmm. Egret and Jon Snow standing over this huge wall of ice. And, and both so- of those moments are about connection between two people. And I think that's, that's why it, it kind of worked for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, the episode works as a bridge, I guess. Like it yeah. takes a, a number of secondary storylines that have already been established and moves them just even more so forward, like just a little bit, but enough. And I think it's a really crucial episode in season three. So, uh, I absolutely loved it. I was blown away by the visual effects, especially in the scenes beyond the wall and the climb. I thought it was fascinating. I have a fear of heights. So I was like at the edge of my seat. Uh, and, you know, I haven't read the book. And I actually, I do want to go and read the books. I plan to read the books this summer when I return to my day camp job. But in the meantime, like I would assume that even reading the book, it wouldn't give me that, that sense of fear just by watching them mm-hmm. scale the wall. So I thought it was incredible. Well, it's something we talk about all the time, taking a, something on the written page and finding a way to tell that same emotion, that same story, cinematically, visually. And this is a perfect example of what can work on the show that, you know, it, to, to, telling a story a slightly different way to produce a, a, a more effective result, you know, for the media that it's presented in. The The other thing I would mention when we're talking about, I mean, I do think that that narrative through line has been in this episode was, uh, as you both said, it was very effective. And I very much enjoyed um, their, their approach this season of just dropping characters out for a week or two weeks. I love Danny, but I did not miss her at all. Right. This week. But the the first and last scene, and I think one of the even most important things about them is that they're actually happy. <laughs> we don't get many of those <laughs> on Game of Thrones. Yeah, well, I think that's really d- definitely by design. I think, you know, not to put make it too awkward of a pun based on the last scene, but it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I really like the idea that uh, th- that you raised of, of the idea of kind of John being the through line and it sort of made me think of kind of like classical music like in baroque music you'll find all these different harmonies or things being layered on top of each other but there's kind of a through line of one main story and maybe that's one something that um I'll have to think some more about that because it, maybe that's a way for me to think about this season and how they've 
strategized with the narrative was just becoming more and more unwieldy that, you know, we've definitely all, I know, I think most people have thought that it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to like not see Danny when we don't need to see her and not to check in on everyone. Cause that just makes it too crazy and too much. But, you know, it's, I think you're right. I think that they've tried to organize it around an idea, a, a theme, maybe a character kind of most symbolizes that theme and they're kind of, you know, the base note, if you will, or the, the, the structure on which they're building the whole episode. And, and it, so many of the characters, the, 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 the metaphor of the climb is a really good one because they're all trying to ascend these very difficult and, you know, wretched um, situations where they're every, any step, any move could put them wrong. I think, I thought there was one thing that struck me as a little odd or maybe could have been set up better. It was the scene uh, with Sansa and uh, the guy from House Tyrell. Uh, why am I spacing Loris. on his name? Loras, yes. Um, it seemed, so are we meant to believe that Sansa thought maybe she was going to be fixed up with Loras and like that she was sort of daydreaming about that or, or her sort of had some fantasies about that? I mean, I know that we she'd had a crush on him at some other point and she's clearly the most clueless person in the court <laughs> for thinking he, he might swing her way. But uh, I, I think she was notified in the last episode that she would be marrying him. Oh, and this came okay. right before uh, Tyrion actually broke the... That was uh, hilarious, by the that way. That was hilarious. This is <laughs> this awkward. Is, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I got all mixed up in my head. I mean, I think that's one of the dangers of the show is I'm like, wait, was there a thing yet officially with Sansa? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to spoil sure. accidentally. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just I got I got really mixed up in my head. So poor poor Sansa. She cannot win for losing. I, I'm actually glad they kept the conversation off screen. Like I know a lot of people wanted to see the conversation on screen, but mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't think we needed to see it. I think that little interaction we had, I think it lasted maybe two minutes. And he just, Peter Dinklage, like his his performance and the way he doesn't know how to, how to respond or even start the conversation. He's just like, this is awkward. And like, <laughs> that's it. Cut to the next scene. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of, there was a similar scene in Mad Men. I, I won't give it away, but, you know, people talked about their pitches, but we actually sort of like the, the, the rough in the bar version. We didn't, and I think that that's a great, sometimes, you know, it's more what's around something than what actually it is, you know, like her crying and being like, I don't want to marry you. Like we know what that's going to be. We don't know how this man who's incredibly um, smart and articulate in every situation, he's just so tongue tied. Like that's the takeaway that he just is feels horrendous about this. And he just, you know, he knows it's going to be like it, it easily the most, one of the most unpleasant moments of his life in that saying something. <laughs> well, I also like the fact that when she sits down and she's speaking to Loras, um, he basically states that it's the worst place in the world. <laughs> like, he's <laughs> like, this is the worst place in the world. At least if we get married, you'll be able to come back home with me. And then later, when uh, Sansa, you know, she's told that, she, no, she's going to have to stay. and She's going to have to marry Tyrion. The expression on her face, like, it, like again, because there's so much to cram into one episode, they really have to do the best they can in terms of direction and dialogue and what's being said and what's not being said. And we just get one quick shot of her staring at the boat. And that's enough for us to know that she knows she will forever be stuck in the worst place in the world. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's you're right. I mean, that's what they've been they've gotten really good at is condensing, but not in a way. I mean, ideally, they condense in a way that doesn't feel too rushed or like they're just skipping past stuff to just get those story beats out there. But I mean, there's there's been moments when the visuals they come up with, the way a scene is framed, like the mood that you get, it, it's worth like a hundred pages of the book, I think. Or you know, it's just it really is a picture, as worth a thousand words. And they've been great about sort of pairing down things to their essentials and and also you know pairing some characters making some changes i don't know how all that will play out i'm just so glad i'm not the person keeping track of like the bible of the show and what how they've diverged and where it all needs to go i think i would be in a mental hospital if that were me well speaking of divergence i think we should uh let's move on to the part of the episode that was a surprise to me, which was everything we get with Melisandra and and uh, Thoros of Mir and Beric, that whole sequence that's new for the series that's not in the books, unless there's some late book five flashback I, I haven't gotten to yet. And uh, specifically Gendry and his role in that, in that yeah. sequence, that's completely new. I thought it was interesting. Um, I feel like it, it's... We'll see where they go with it. I don't want to just instinctively dislike things for being different because so many of the changes they've made have been really smart ones and, you know, good moves. But uh, I feel like there's a little bit of a they chose to sacrifice the Brotherhood Without Banners, you know, whatever honor that they because in the books, at least to me, it seems like they have a lot of they, they really feel like they have that honor. It doesn't there isn't that hypocrisy that we see the same way in the series, in the TV show. Um, so it feels like they kind of sacrificed some of that or made them, again, a shadowy figure more in line with these various kings that they're supposedly fighting against in order to benefit the Stannis and Melisandre arc and uh, what's mm-hmm. going to be coming with them. I'm curious, uh, how, you know, how that worked for you, Mo, having read the book before. Was that something that was giving you a hard time? I didn't... It, it struck me as kind of out of left field. Again, I mean, I'm actively hoping that I forget aspects of the book but um what what first struck me is well how did she find him and how does she know that he's special i don't like these are if these were this is information we already had i've long since forgotten it um so i guess those are some key questions i mean I, i know that she's like this sort of sorceress and what have you and has a special relationship with the lord of light and you know had a shadow baby that maybe is running around somewhere out there um, I, I don't know, like, it just seems like those are pretty big pieces of information that I don't, I can't, I don't even know how to judge the storyline yet, because who is she doing this for? Why, how did she find this information? It's a giant, giant kingdom. How did she happen to come across, like, the last time we saw her, she was, you know, leaving for Westeros. And again, for all we know, she was looking for months on end. Um, but these why she's doing this why is she actually helping stannis is she out for herself is she out for the lord of light how gendry will figure into future storylines that's all uncharted territory for me and some of that's great like i don't mind that they're diverging and doing their own thing i think some of it though needs to be filled in because otherwise it's kind of like the theon story in that I have absolutely no... I I like those actors a lot. In fact, I was uh, a fan of Misfits and the actor who's torturing um, Theon in in those scenes. He was in that TV show, which you can find on Hulu. Um, So it's not that I have a problem with the performances, but it's very hard for me to be invested in something where we're six episodes into a season and I literally don't know that guy's name and I don't know when I'm going to (laughs) find it out. So so I'm willing to be patient with the Gendry storyline. 
I, as far as him being sold out by the Brotherhood, um, I would imagine the Brotherhood, I, I guess I view them as sort of noble-ish. Uh, I don't really, I, I think there's sort of some sort of cross between, you know, Robin Hood and his merry band and just a, a, a merry band of guys who go around and do things they feel like doing because they're not particularly alive <laughs> with anyone. So I, that didn't strike me as that out of line. I mean, because he hasn't been with them for long. It's just one of those things where it's like, well, dude, sucks to be you, but we're going to give you over to these people for a whole bunch of money. Um, so that didn't strike me, but hoping we can get more about that and it doesn't just become, and here's Gendry. He's this 34th storyline that we will be trying to keep track of. Woohoo! How did that work for you, Ricky? Yeah, I'm going to totally agree. I mean, back on episode four, we had our, uh, our colleague Simon Howell on the show to review that episode with us. And he pretty much said, he's like, look, Kate, I don't care about the Brotherhood without banners. And, you know, I was sort of siding with Simon, but I was like, let's wait till like episode five and episode five comes along. And I'm like, I'm really starting to like these guys for once. So, yeah, so I really started to like these guys until, of course, Melisandre has to show up and ruin it all. Uh, (laughs) But I'm okay with knowing when not knowing how she found out where they were located. But how does she know who uh, Gendry is? I mean, how many people actually know that he's the bastard son of the king? Right. Like, that's that's one of my issues. I'm like, well, this is important information, and we don't even know how she got it. No, and, and see, the thing is, as someone that didn't read the book, I just assumed that I was being stupid, and I just missed something in previous episodes. But then I spoke to a bunch of my friends who've actually read the book, and they're like, no, it was never hinted. It was never said. No one knows that he's – or no one's supposed to know that he's the bastard son. So I, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. There's, there's things that I do like about her scene. Like I like her interaction with, uh, Beric and also with, uh, yes, Thoros. Thoros Amir. Yeah. Yes. Because, because, um, like I, I just like, cause you know, we've discussed the idea of magic on the show and, and like what exactly is the rules of magic. And we're not entirely sure if at least the TV series has really done a good job in establishing the rules. But I thought it was a really interesting scene in where she's like in disbelief that he was able to raise Beric from the dead six times. And she's like, that's impossible. But even more so, uh, she asks him, what did you see? Like, you know, what did you see on the other side? And he replies, simply darkness. There is no afterlife. And that kind of makes the series even more grim and depressing, knowing that once you die, there is no afterlife and they live in such a corrupt world just makes the series even so it just makes it so incredibly depressing and grim. And therefore that makes me care even more for every single person on the show that I like, like, you know, characters like Jon Snow and Danny, because there's so many horrible things being done to all of these people, as we see at the end of the episode with uh, Ross, that it just makes me just, I don't know, my heart goes out to these characters more. So I think we're supposed to, at least that's my guess is that we're supposed to read into that scene with, with Melisandre and, and the brotherhood that, that the flames led her there. But I don't like that. They want us to do that because there is, there's an infinite amount of knowledge that she theoretically could get from the flames if they want mm-hmm. to, to establish that. And so to not just, he have the, a line, um, the Lord led me to you or something like that. She, 
you could have had a line like that very easily in that scene. It would have felt very much in keeping with the rest of the discussion. It could have tied in with her wondering at Thoros and his power and feeling like she has this extra close relationship with the Lord of Light and then being stunned by what Thoros can do, you know. Um, and so I don't like that, that we're supposed to just kind of assume that, you know, that, that lo- this level of information, because then where does it cut off? What, does, what doesn't she know? And I'm not entirely sure why she needs him. Does she want to sacrifice him to the Lord of Light? Like, does she need his blood? Or is she going to use him to win the war? Like, is um, he... We know. Or I know. <laughs> you know because you've read the book. Because I've read the book. Read... Okay. No, you're not. Sp- well, she had said earlier, right, to Stannis that your your fire is low. You don't have the strength to be able to give me another son. I... We there are you're not the only one with King's blood, right? That's what she said when she left. Yeah. So that is the extent of what we know. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's yeah, still- I don't. I don't know. I, I wish I I knew more about all those things. I, I'm in agreement that I think it's in, it's one thing to have supernatural forces. I think generally speaking, they've used that kind of thing really well in the show. Magic is not a magical like literally like a magical problem solver like there aren't people who'd have just powers that can just sort of snap their fingers and make certain things better you know Derek comes back from the dead but nobody knows why that happens nobody can really control you know giving that to somebody else you know there's what I find interesting is that people are kind of at the whim of capricious powers that they can't always control once in a while they can but the thing is what you can slip down into a slippery slope of is you know then well, we'll just use magic when we need it, or it's just, well, it's unpredictable, therefore it's it's a get-out-of-jail-free card when we <laughs> need one. And and I think that's, you know, what's it's one reason that unfairly, I think, for the most part, um, fantasy fiction and stories have been sort of marginalized is because there's a perception, and a certainly I don't think an accurate one with the best fantasy works, that, you know, oh, well, there's no real stakes because there's always a wizard who comes along and fixes stuff. So I'm glad that the characters themselves are confused by it. But I think, you know, you're right. Like, if if we just have Melisandre as a character who has infinite power just when the story happens to have her need that, it just seems kind of arbitrary. But hopefully, you know, so far I've been impressed with how they've handled those kinds of things. So I'm just going to kind of wait and see. Well, I do think it's good that we get this scene with Thoros because now I'm far more invested in that character than I, than I was, or than I was, you know, that I was when I was reading the books. So it is nice to have that insight into him and just a little bit more with Beric as well. I, you know, I'm far more interested in the brotherhood now than I had been before, even if I am disappointed um, to, to get one of those few happy kind of shining lights of non-corruption taken out of the series. Um, but so, so yes, yeah, so I have some issues with that, but I, at least we got some really good scenes out of it. If we're talking about really interesting conversations, how have we not talked about uh, Tywin and Elena, Dame Diana Rigg, you know, meeting Charles Dance uh, blow for blow. That was so great. That was like um, two dowager countesses just sparring. And I would have taken, you know, what? that's one of the things, you know, someone said earlier, um, I th- this is a show where a lot of things just happen like over a conversation, over a glass of wine, lots of people just talking to each other. You know, it's supposed to be epic, you know, action adventure fantasy to some degree. And it is, you know, we just got the wall. We got really cool fights here and there and things like this. But 
a lot of time people are just talking to each other and this is why the show's ratings are going up and you know one of the reasons why anyway because you put together two really really savvy smart charismatic actors like Charles Dance and Diana Rigg and write really good dialogue for them and you know ultimately you could make the argument that what's the point of that scene because ultimately you know uh, Tywin Lannister gets his way as he tends to get you know he he'd proposed those marriages had been pr proposed last week and ultimately he sort of pushed it through over the objections of Olena Tyrell um, but so what? You know, it was great. It was great to watch her kind of spar with him and see if she could um, break his resolve and, and come back at him with, you know, arguments as to why her powerful family should, you know, get this or that concession. Um, but, you know, ultimately he prevailed as he tends to do, and that's why he's the most powerful man in the kingdom. But it was just such a delight to see the actors just spar. So much great character work for these actors. You know, I'm a huge, huge fan of the actor playing Lord Varys. I mean, those scenes with Littlefinger and, and Varys, I would watch a whole show just of that, you know, because these people, there's lots of people who don't like each other, but have to be sort of fake pretend nice while ultimately like wielding all these conversational daggers. And I find that so much fun. You know, they, they really have the cast that can pull that off for sure. Yeah, and that's Conleth Hill and, uh, of course, Aidan Gillen as, as Baelish. It's been so fun to watch um, on the show, and that's another, at least for me, difference in the book. I think they've been, at least maybe I just wasn't picking up the signs when I was reading it, but at this point in the book, I was more pro-Peter uh, Baelish than I am uh, watching the series because he's just so smarmy. So I love that in that scene, you you, you, you know, we get a way to sort of rank the, the various um, deviousness versus um, emotion versus, you know, all these different things about Lord Varys and, and Lord Baelish, who are two characters who theoretically could be very similar. I like that we're seeing over the course of the season, uh, you know, a strong, di you know, strong, strong line uh, drawn between who those two people are. Yeah, I actually, my favorite scene in the whole entire episode is the scene that features Littlefinger's speech. Um, I, I just love the way he explains his worldview and his raw lust for power. And I, I believe it starts off where they say, he says something like on the lines of, I'm paraphrasing here, if he says like, do you know what the realm is? It's a thousand blades of our enemy, a story we tell everyone so that we'll eventually forget that it's a lie. But it's it's sort, it's sort of like a cynical take on the whole ent entire theme of the episode but I, I love the reply that Varys gives them where he's like, well, I did it for the good of the realm. And that makes me question his motives because does he really think he's doing everything for the good of the kingdom? Or is it or is he just like Littlefinger where he's really focused on himself and how he benefits from everything? Because I'm a little confused about his character right now. Uh, whereas Littlefinger, I know exactly where he stands. Uh, and again, like uh, I just think the conversation between those two uh, characters and the two actors are fantastic. To me, it's always a highlight to see them in the same uh, in the same room. And I, I just love the way he he goes on. He says like, "Chaos isn't a pit; it's a ladder." And so for him, it's like it's a view for suckers, you know, like people who service people in power, like kings or or warlocks or red priests or whatever. They, they they're just servants. And at the end of at the end of the day, they don't mean anything to those people. And so I just I don't know. I just his whole speech just makes symbolic use of the literal climb that John and company take up the wall. So I just love the way every single scene in this episode just ties right back into Jon Snow's mission. 
Yeah, and I think a, a lot of it, you know, that scene for sure, I think it, it it is a great delineation between the characters. and It's a great delineation between two viewpoints, which, you know, he's right. You know, I don't think Varys disagrees with Littlefinger that, you know, the public history of the throne, whatever the realm is, these are lies or there's stories we agree to tell ourselves. I don't necessarily know that they're lies, but every, you know, it goes right back to the first scene of the episode um, or one of the first scenes where Igrit and John are talking about, you know, what they'll do and who they'll be loyalty. Every char- the, the, the main thrust of the whole show, of the whole story, of the whole tale is how will you construct your morality and your loyalty and those two things in this world go hand in hand so everyone is subject to a series of agreements they've made you know you'll be loyal to your wife or your siblings you'll be loyal to your house you'll be loyal to your region you'll be loyal to loyal to your you know who you've sworn your banner to and you know if you're a lowly person you maybe are a bit more of a free agent you sometimes have more agency if you're kind of outside that power structure or in a weird niche in it sort of a la Brienne or even Tyrion you know there're a lot of characters who just don't traditionally fit in niches that they're supposed to that, you know they're, they're not like fitting into pre-made slots and so these people are kind of coming at it from the outside or a lot of the characters are forced into these positions where they're what John has to sit there and think, okay, well, if it comes down to it and I had to sacrifice Egret for the men of the Night's Watch, you know, a bunch of fairly miserable guys <laughs> who are going to <laughs> freeze and then, you know, at the top of the world forever. And that'll be my own only companionship. You know, he has to sit there and think people are forced into decisions. And this is kind of one of the hallmarks of my favorite shows, especially like Battlestar and even Lost or The Wire. You know, show characters are forced between a bad decision and a worse decision. Like the, the options are, are usually only bad or they might be good. Like if John, if Jon Snow saves Egret and, you know, pisses off the men of the Night's Watch or if he's found out to be a traitor by man, it's like in doing one thing, they're often setting other things into motion that they, sh- you know, like Rob shouldn't have gotten married to the woman he got married to, but he did. And now that set another chain of events into motion. So you can make a choice that's for you, that makes you happy. Um, but quite often it sets into motion a bunch of unintended consequences. And then some of your intended actions that you, that you wanted to take can completely rebound on you in ways you didn't expect. Again, through all of these layers of loyalty and fealty and, people are just questioning all over the place. Why am I doing this? And why am I doing it for you? Like even Melisandre is going, well, wait a minute. I've been serving this guy a really long time. (laughs) Why isn't, why is he giving this like drunken idiot, you know, this connection that I've always wanted. So I, I kind of love that. That's to me, one of the great things that they've really honed in on. You know, a lot of people complain about, Oh, there's not enough mythology and a lot of, things get thrown by the wayside or details and whatnot. And I completely understand there's just not a lot they can, they can't fit everything in like all the, the hundreds of years of mythology and background. Um, but I'm really pleased with how they've come at this, these ideas about power and loyalty and morality and how they've linked them up thematically and all these interesting ways. Thwarting you has never been my primary ambition. I promise you. Although who doesn't like to see their friends fail now and then. You're so right. For instance, when I thwarted your plan to give Sansa Stark to the Tyrells, if, I'm going to be honest, I did feel an unmistakable sense of enjoyment there, 
But your confidant, the one who fed you information about my plans, the one you swore to protect, you didn't bring her any enjoyment. And she didn't bring me any enjoyment. She was a bad investment on my part. Luckily, I have a friend who wants to try something new. Something daring. And he was so grateful to me for providing this fresh experience. I did what I did for the good of the realm. The realm? Do you know what the realm is? It's the thousand blades of Aegon's enemies. A story we agree to tell each other over and over till we forget that it's a lie. But what do we have left once we abandon the lie? Chaos. A gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fail. Never get to try again. The fall breaks them. And some are given a chance to climb. They refuse. They cling to the realm. Or the gods. Or love. Illusions. Only the ladder is real. The climb is all there is. Ygritte has her own version of Littlefinger's theme about individuals and organizations. And, but the thing is, it's kind of similar and it's kind of different, but that's why I think her speech mirrors the speech that Littlefinger gives later on in the episode. Because she basically says, she says, like, you know, Nance Raider doesn't care if I live or die. The Night Watch doesn't care if you live or die. It should be about you and I. But there is an important difference between her and Littlefinger because she at least does value loyalty. Whereas Littlefinger doesn't value loyalty at all. In fact, I would say oh, 99% of these characters don't. I disagree. Well, Littlefinger I mean, he... values loyalty clearly, or he wouldn't be so upset with Roz when she breaks that loyalty. Yeah, but who is he loyal to? He's loyal to himself. Himself, he, he, exactly. He... That's what I mean, though. Like, no. he, he, for him, it's okay if everyone's loyal to him, but who is he loyal to? Whereas Egret is at least willing to return the loyalty, be it Jon Snow or I don't know whoever I don't know I, I I think there are there are many differences between the, the characters but I I would say that that Baelish I mean he's an interest very interesting character but I don't think he has some, he, that he doesn't value loyalty I think he just doesn't have anyone that he is willing to be loyal to if other people swear loyalty to him he demands it and clearly we see what happens if you break that no but uh, sorry I mean not their character as a whole but just their character in that specific scene and what they're talking about okay. because like the end of the episode like the reason why i don't think it's cheesy uh whereas some people have said said, said this online is because yeah she kisses Jon snow at the top of the wall but that romantic ending is sort of like a rebuttal to his philosophy and so we get this beautiful scene with these incredible visual effects and she climbs to the top of the wall and it's the first time she actually gets a 
a proper view of the world, not just the other side of the wall, but she gets to compare that world that she's never seen to the world that she's always known. And the contrast is so different. I mean, you got the ice cold background and you got the beautiful sunset. Um, yeah, that was kind view. of bullshit. It was way too green. It shouldn't be that green in the north, but whatever. <laughs> well, you're basing this on the book. No, I'm ba- book. Well, but also because- just it doesn't look that green where Bran is. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think the, it does. But He's the, always surrounded the, by trees. We're getting a, a, an overhead view of the scenery as opposed to Grand being, you know, walking beneath the trees. So, of course, there's a lot more shadow instead of, like, sunlight coming through. So, But, I, 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 but I get it, you know. The, well, just look at how, how they're dressed at the beginning of Series 1. They're all in furs all the time. If it's that green, they wouldn't be wearing furs all the time. But I understand the point they're trying to make, and I'm just being pedantic and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, I, the thing for me with Varys and, and Baelish is that I don't know. I just have so much fun with those characters, and of course, being you know the geek that I am, I always like to compare. I go to my mental D and D breakdowns and uh, three, two, three point five, eight D and D, not four D and D four, where uh, Baelish is chaotic, neutral, or, or evil, and and Varys is lawful, neutral, and just like seeing the difference between those two. I I would go back to uh, Ricky Sinisa earlier. With seeing the differences between those two characters, I, I feel like Varys is very tied into what we saw, what was that, last week or a couple weeks last, back? Last week. With, with the Sorcerer? Mm-hmm, last week. And so I do feel like he is far more invested in in, in, the, in the realm and in order than, than Baelish, and that's where I see the, the contrast. But yeah, you're, clearly there there are these themes, like we said earlier, that were tying through the whole episode and, and sort of bringing bringing it all together in a way that, that really worked. I would like to talk about uh, Bran and and the reeds a little bit. I thought it was a nice touch the that they introduced the, the seizures for Jojen, as well as just a little hunting off was, was fun. Yeah, but we need more of Bran, and we need more of, the, of Jojen. We got Osha and Mira complaining about how they go about skinning rabbits, and then we get a bit of Jojen, and that's it. Like I, we need more of those characters. Like we've we if you if you were to total up the amount of screen time they've had so far in season three, I would say maybe less than ten minutes. That's not enough. See, I don't really care about them as much, so I haven't I haven't really missed them. But, well, but where do you, you fall on that? You don't care like, about them because you've read the book. But has no. someone who hasn't read the book, I'm like, why are we following around these characters every so often? Like, what's the point? No, that's not why. <laughs> okay, so you just... I, there's always stories in, in Game of Thrones that I wish there was more of, either because I love the actors, I love the combination, I love that particular theme or whatever is just going on in that story. And then sometimes it's just because it's like, I don't really... There's not a critical mass for me to really jump into. And so I had this problem last time. I mean, I loved the visuals of when Jon Snow was beyond the wall last season. And, you know, they shot up in Iceland and it was like super, it was visually great. I didn't feel like the execution of Ygritte and Corn Halfhand. And I know a lot of fans were kind of just upset with how that transpired and how they, they shaped that narrative. So I, I, I agreed with that, especially toward the end of last season. So I think right now with me, with Theon, with Bran um, and Osha and all those folks, um, I, that's harder for me to care about. I think, though, what I've done, <laughs> I'm like, my brain has kind of evolved to just accept a certain level of, I don't know, I don't know, know if I want to call it superficiality, but um, 
I, I'm just accepting of what 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 Game of Thrones has to do. And it's funny because I was thinking about literally like I'm thinking about it lately as like a piece of music in that there are peaks and valleys and you know as I was saying before there's like these contrapuntal narratives and they kind of twist around each other and sometimes go off on tangents and what have you but the the thrust of the main the ideas the themes they're trying to get at that sort of remains fairly somewhat steady in terms of the just quest for power that's kind of the uniting thing that 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 keeps it, it all revolving in the same kind of world so I'm okay with not seeing a ton of certain stories, although I wouldn't mind if there were more. I just, I think that this is just, the, the way that the story is going to unfold, they can keep refining how it's, it's going to happen. It's always going to be somewhat unwieldy, and there's always going to be a couple of plates spinning on the edge of the your, the periphery of your vision, where you're just like, "What? What's the deal with that guy again?" You know. So, but I'm I'm okay. I'm actually okay with it. I just the way I view it as every few episodes or every few scenes, there's going to be a small crescendo, and then you know go up and down and up and down, and then you'll get those really amazing moments like Danny at Astapor, um, like you know the Ned Stark. Uh, from season one and episode nine that you, you get these moments that kind of bring a ton of things together into sharp focus and they don't tend to be like, I think, you know, I certainly am more used to, t- TV has trained me to be more used to it being like more is wrapped up in an hour or more feels done or completed an hour. That's just not how the show's ever going to work. So I think to some degree, I don't know if I shouldn't have, but I kind of just accepted well, the, <laughs> like, the, thing- the, the style of it to some degree. The thing about the scenes with Bran, though, is what do we learn? Like, he has a vision that Jon Snow is on the other side of the wall, which we already know. We've known this forever. And then he has the vision on the same episode in which Jon Snow gets to the top of the wall. So he scales the top of the wall. So the scene just, it felt like it could have been removed. It's like, I love those characters and I want to see more of those characters. But if you're going to, if you're going to feature those characters, give me something to work with. Don't just have a vision of something that I as a viewer already know. So right. that, that was my major problem with the, with that, um, with that sequence. And again, I love this episode, uh, but I don't think that's a nitpick. I think that's a valid complaint. And I, I also mm-hmm. I have to go back to something that I just, I once again, do not like it's the scenes revolving around Theon Greyjoy. I mean, you guys, you guys have read the book, but I find his scenes are so incredibly frustrating and uninteresting because all we basically do is we watch this actor, Alfie Allen, get tortured and yell and plead for help. And we have no idea who this guy is. And I understand that they, they've dropped a few clues in the last episode. So if you're paying close attention, you can maybe figure out who it is. But I've spoken to, I swear to God, this weekend, because I went to two barbecues, I've spoken to over 30 people who watched this series. Half of them have read the book. Half of them have not read the book. And everyone that hasn't read the book has no idea who he is. And everyone that's read the book says, well, it's obvious, but it's not obvious. Yeah, it's you see. It's not obvious to me at all. <laughs> it's not like the, we do see a banner in the previous episode, which makes me believe he's somehow related to Bolton, but appearances can be deceiving, as we all know. So I'm not entirely sure who he is, but I'm, I, I don't care who he is. I really, really don't. Like you have a, a show that has so many characters that we care about, you introduce someone new. You got to make a, a great first impression. He didn't make a good first impression, and he didn't make a good second or third good impression. So I'm just not interested in this whole Theon Greyjoy storyline whatsoever. I think that, uh, or at least I'm getting a sense watching it that the the that Benioff and Weiss may have thought that 
viewers were going to pick up on that more. The 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 banner of House Bolton being a guy being tortured on a giant X, and then Theon being tortured on a giant X, and they haven't, you know. So and I don't feel like that's a spoiler because it's on screen. It's that's being shown to us, and they've made a point of mentioning the flayed man of House Bolton and showing us the House Bolton banner a couple times on screen. Um, so that, then that feels more like a intense viewers of lost kind of level of realization as opposed to a people like dragons level of just watching game of thrones for fun and so i, I think if it, it, i think at least that's the sense i get watching it that that they feel like the viewers are going to be more invested in it than most everybody seems like they are well i, I mean like you said the clues are evident i'm sure if we we rewatch the season or all three seasons again, you know, we'll see a lot of things that we didn't pick up upon first viewing, but it's just that I don't really find the scenes interesting. Like it's like watching a horror film that's torture porn, you know, like I don't particularly like want to see an Eli Roth horror film. And I just feel like every single scene we get now of Theon Greyjoy is him being tortured. I'm like, how long are they going to continue to torture him? So I'm just not interested in this, in the sequence. It's the only major complaint I have of season three so far. But apart from Theon Greyjoy, I think season three is far better than season two still. Why is that? I mean, I'm, I'm curious because I, I kind of agree with you, but I'm just wondering if our reasons differ on that. Well, as someone who hasn't read the book, I just assumed or felt that season two was trying to cram in so much and they didn't do a really good job in all the different like various storylines mm -hmm. and i felt like it was just all building up to the big giant battle in the second last episode uh, and i feel like with season three uh i'm i'm learning a lot more about each and every single character and i feel like there's more forward movement as opposed to just moving forward to one battle i feel like we're moving forward to many huge storylines that are probably probably going to we're probably only going to see in the next season, but I just see, I, I feel like there's more forward movement. I mean, so much so that even my favorite character, Danny, doesn't appear in this episode. And I agree with you, Kate. Like, I I didn't miss her. She's my favorite character, but there was so much going on and so many characters that I, I love to watch on screen that I was okay with not having her appear in, uh, on on uh, this episode, the sixth episode of season three. But um, I, I just really want to see more of, uh, I know you don't, Kate, but I want to see more of Bram. I like the idea of wargs, the idea of him having these visions and possibly seen into the future. Um, I like that character. I, I, it's not it's not that I don't like Theon Greyjoy. I just don't necessarily like the position he's in right now. So I kind of want to see that sort of storyline move forward a bit more. Yeah, I can't, I can't disagree with that. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a little frustrating. I guess I've, I'm just at the point where I there are character I think shows that are long running it's really rare for me not to have at least a couple storylines where I'm like meh don't care I mean I'm almost at the point where I'm just going to fast forward through every Betty scene on <laughs> Mad Men I keep threatening to do that I, one of these days I will um, yeah I mean I think certain things are slow to kind of ripen on, Matt, on, on Game of Thrones and hopefully uh, you know I just it's so radical when I think about the early days of season one, I was actually, you know, someone who had been, you know, writing about the show for years before it even debuted and really kind of excited about it and pumped about it coming. I was really underwhelmed with like the first four. I thought there were some visuals that were great and the cast was very good, but just there's so much heavy lifting. And now it, f it feels much more fluid. It feels much more, um, 
uh, organic. I do think I, I would almost say, say that like the, the, the thing, the people that I'm invested in, those investments are fairly deep. Like they're doing some things really, really well. Like in terms of Jamie Lannister, um, one of the things this, this whole saga does really well is get you a little bit more inside the minds and motivations and lives of people that you start out thinking are one thing and then you kind of turn around a little bit and you know Joffrey's always going to be the world's worst human being and <laughs> we'll always <laughs> want him to die but uh, I mean if, I, if I'm you know you can always sit there I can always sit there and say oh I wish we got more of the hound I wish we got more of this character and that but overall I'm I'm pleased with the overall trajectory of the show, which seems like they're kind of gaining more mastery over what it is they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. but, but if you take, for example, the scene between Tywin and Lady Olana, which you yourself said could have been removed, but you just love to see it, see those two actors on screen. And the dialogue was great. The performances are great. We all love Charles Dance, I believe. Um, and even though that scene doesn't necessarily move the plot forward, it does tell us a bit about each character. Yeah, it lets us know that she's okay with the fact that her son's gay. Like, she doesn't mind. It lets us know that Lannister is, you know, not okay with the fact that his sis, uh, his daughter and his, and his son are sleeping together. And it, it, it makes us realize that he knows deep down inside that Joffrey is not the king. And he knows who the real parents are. But, of course, he's not going to admit it. Uh, and also, like, their exchange, it felt like they were playing, like, a poker game or, or some kind of card game. And they both managed to play their cards at the exact right moment. It just so happens that Tywin had the edge on her. Like, so, yeah, so I, I guess that's, that, that's the key difference between a scene with those two characters and, once again, a scene with Bran, where we don't learn anything about anyone and we're not told anything that we don't already know. So that's why I'm kind of questioning why that scene was in this episode. Like, I, I think they could have used that five minutes for someone else. Because the thing is, Kate, here's my question for you. Mm -hmm. do, do they feel like they need to remind viewers that these characters still exist? I don't know. But, um, I mean, I wouldn't think so. But, you know, we, we haven't really spent a lot of time with them recently. My only thing with that is that we know that the visions that Jojen has talked about before, some are in the present, some are in the past, some are in the future. Mm -hmm. We don't know that the vision he saw was what was happening in this episode. Maybe it was, but it also may not have been. It could be something far down the line. Okay. And its inclusion in the episode makes me believe that it wasn't the thing we just saw. So, I, you know, I don't know. But you know that that could that's also maybe just me having more faith in the writers because they tend to not include stuff that isn't necessary for some reason or another, and we'll see why that scene with Lady Elena and Lord Tywin was included a little later on. But um, I, I, as for that scene, I just I love the meta last line of it. It's so rare that you know somebody lives up to their reputation. It's I thought it was just like the perfect you know because we've been we've been waiting for the Lady Elena and. Uh, and Tywin scene since they introduced her and she was awesome. You, you mentioned Jamie, but the last thing I have to say is I love the dress, the pink dress. It, it was perfectly horrible. <laughs> yeah, that was truly like she looked so uncomfortable. It's, it's just of all the characters put into really difficult situations, she may have been the most, most tortured. I don't know, but that was... I mean, it really was, to me, a great sign of how well these actors have played these roles, how well the roles have been written, that I'm really deeply invested now in this guy who's just, you know, began as 
an, just awful, arrogant, you know, murderer, would-be murderer of children, no less. And, you know, that's that's a really difficult <laughs> hole to start out from. But now I'm really invested in those two not being split up. I just love the dynamic that they have that he can't he almost can never say anything seriously or be sincere where she's always sincere and always really serious so it's like this incredible opposites you know this odd couple thing and they they play it so beautifully that now i'm actually like oh man these I, they can't split up my favorite i mean i wouldn't even call them a couple but you know it's one of those pairings that it, it's so perfect that it, it would just be like, gosh, even if they changed the narrative to make sure they kind of <laughs> hang out more, I'd be okay with that maybe. I don't know. Oh, no. So you're telling me that they are actually going to split up? I don't know. I can't oh, remember. I'm telling you, not. memory loss is my friend but here. You know, I, have I, no, I have no idea. Kate, I couldn't help but notice the dress also, but I just assumed that she picked out the dress for herself. because. She's oh, not, no. No, because <laughs> I just assumed that... She's not used to dress to wearing a dress. Like she's usually dressed in an armor. Like she's a warrior. She's a knight. And so I don't think she really like. I, I don't think she has an eye for fashion. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she picked out the dress herself. But I thought it was so cute, and I love the way she was helping him eat dinner. Um, they are like the most lovable couple on TV right now, despite the fact that Jamie started has this horrible, horrible character. Uh, which again, give a lot of credit to the actor, the writers, and the director. Um, so yeah, but I'm also glad to see that we're at least Bolton is taking a larger role, at least in the last couple of episodes. So, uh, cause before I was kind of, once again, it's also with Stannis, like what, what is Stannis doing exactly? <laughs> like I'm waiting for Stannis to actually finally do something in the show. I don't know. I, I, I really don't think Bran picked out that dress because if she had any choice in what she was wearing, she wouldn't be wearing a dress. You think? Yeah, I think. Well, I don't think that they would allow her. She would think that she can wear like her armor and a sword when she's technically still a prisoner. Which is why I think they left a dress in her room and said, you're going to wear that. <laughs> I mean, okay. I don't know. Just finding something that would fit her would be a challenge because she's so tall. <laughs> I mean, hey now. she's tall. I all, really, all the other yeah. girls in the show are tiny. I can relate to her fashion struggles. I'm, I'm six foot myself, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, any final thoughts on, on this episode, on the season as a whole? Any predictions your hopes? Um, I'm just really pleasantly surprised. I, I do think that, you know, every season I got some some wish. I guess there's always a wish list of things I want to see more of or things that it maybe I think could have been handled um, a different way or, or maybe a more elegant way. But I think the vast majority of what they're doing, you know, 85, 90 percent of it is, is stuff that I am on board with and or really love. And so um you know, there's always the bigger question of what's the level of greatness that this show can achieve. And I think if we look at it in the sense of a season, like a, you know, we can look at a season of Buffy or a season of Lost or a season of this or that and over the wire and, and sort of hone in on what that season was trying to do. This show isn't doing that. So I still sort of wrestle with, OK, well, how much should I want that? How much, you know, does the show just need to go off and do its own thing to, to do anything successfully? So um, that's a bigger big picture question. But right now I really look forward every week to watching it. And I'm really I'm, uh, generally enjoying the, the trajectory that it's on. And, and it's just a great escape that also makes me think about life and, and a lot of the things that it brings up. So I can't really ask for more than that. I think we should just mention Roz because she does oh, die right. in this episode, which was horrible. I'm told that she's not actually a character in the book. Yeah. 
Okay, so she's just invented for the TV show? Okay. Uh, also, I think Sam is probably the most optimistic person I've ever seen on television because he's really trying to sell the wall has like a great place to visit, like it's Disney World. I think he's overreaching a bit, uh, but I do like his character. I think he's really sweet. And I do like the fact that in that brief opening scene, he does uh, remind us that he has the spearhead. Uh, I want to kind of see more of uh, Sam. I kind of miss Hot Pie, so <laughs> I need some character that's just lovable and deep down good inside. So I'm glad that he's at least getting some screen time. I hope next week uh, Theon Greyjoy gets out of his little torture chamber and sort of moves on. Because I kind of like his character to some degree, even though he's technically like not a good person either. But is anyone in the show really good, aside from maybe Hot Pie and Sam? Well, that's that's a great question. I think some of the characters are being forced into that position all the time of whether they're going to be good or whether they're going to survive. Now we know that Arya is supposedly going to the dark side, according to Melisandre, and I'm assuming she's going to kill three people with green eyes, blue eyes, and brown eyes, which just about <laughs> means that she can kill anybody on the cast. Oh, exactly. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Next- but anyways, I love, I love this episode, Kate. What about you? I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun uh, to, to watch. And I, I thought that people who've read the books will know that there are certain big events that are coming up. And I figured that one of them would be happening next week because it's the episode that George R. R. Martin wrote for this season. But apparently not. And instead, we are going to get... Uh, it's called The Bear and the Maiden Fair is the episode. And I think if you've read the book... You know what that means, and uh, therefore, I'm really excited for, for next week. <laughs> Spoil-free, uh, annoying teaser, but yeah. it's going to be awesome. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> n- now that my quota of being infuriating about knowing things that you don't know, Ricky, is is met, uh, I, we, we will wrap up our podcast this week. Mo, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Where can our listeners find you online? Uh, HuffingtonPost.com slash TV is our TV site, and you'll find a little button that has my name on it if you want to peruse my ramblings and so forth. And there's also uh, Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan. If you um, put that in your Internet browser, it'll probably come up or in your iTunes search. We're, uh, we're over there as well. So um, thanks so much for having me. This is always a great, fun, great chat, and um, I can't wait to revisit uh, some of this maybe in the future. Hey, yeah. Kate, I got big news for next week. I'm uh, I'm going to a Game of Thrones drag show. So I'll oh, have yeah? some stories to tell. Yeah, for, for my birthday. Pictures, please? Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, if I'm allowed. I guess I'm allowed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, that's, that's, that's very intriguing. Okay. Of course, you can find more from Ricky and myself at soundonsite.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. He's at soundonsite. I am at the Televerse. And we will be back next week to talk about Episode 7, The Bear and the Maiden Fair. And we'll have another great guest for that. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week. Impossible. Why? My grandson is the pride of High Garden the most desirable bachelor in all seven kingdoms. Your daughter is rich, the most beautiful woman in all seven kingdoms, and the mother of the king. Old. Old? Old. I'm something of an expert on the subject. Her change will be upon her before long. I'll spare you the details of what will happen then. You men may have a stomach for bloodshed and slaughter, but this is another matter entirely.
Well, the years punish us as well, I promise you that. My stomach remains quite strong, however. The only thing that might turn it are details of your grandson's nocturnal activities. Do you deny them? Oh, not at all. A sword swallower through and through. And a boy with his affliction should be grateful for the opportunity to marry the most beautiful woman in the kingdoms and remove the stain from his name. Did you grow up with boy cousins, Lord Tywin? Sons of your father's bannermen, squires, stable boys? Of course. And you never... No. Not once? Not in any way? Never. I congratulate you upon your restraint. But it's a natural thing, two boys having a go at each other beneath the sheets. Perhaps High Garden has a high tolerance for unnatural behavior. I wouldn't say that. True, we don't tie ourselves in knots over a discreet bit of buggery, but... Brothers and sisters, where I come from, that stain would be very difficult to wash out. <laughs>